We're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, we have been journeying through this since August and having a lot of fun with it. And uh, we're coming to the end of kind of the semester. It's like two months left. We only have four or five bridges remaining, which is... What? Well, yeah, yeah, we have two preaching. So uh, November 7th, November 14th, we're going to get into the prophetic literature of Daniel, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Daniel 6 is closing out the narrative portion, which is like story, which is focusing on the life of Daniel. Uh, And then we'll have Thanksgiving. So we won't be here for Thanksgiving that Tuesday. I think it's the 21st. So don't come on November 21st. Then November 28th, uh, which is... Legally, we are able to do uh, worship, Christmas music, all those kind of things. So we're going to have a Christmas concert. Is that the way to say that, Truett? Yeah, so November 28th, we're going to have a a Christmas concert in here. It'll be amazing. And then December 5th, that first one in December, right before finals or as finals get going, we're going to have our classy Christmas, which you'll hear more about in the coming weeks. But that's what we got. It's kind of crazy. Everything is coming to a conclusion. And uh, I'm excited to get into Daniel chapter 6 because Daniel is a faithful man that loves the Lord and God does, uses him as his messenger for amazing, amazing things. Um, we saw the end of Babylon's reign, Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar, Belshazzar, he is uh, wiped out, taken out by the Medo-Persians. And now in chapter 6, we have a new sheriff in town, so to speak. We have um, Darius, or King Cyrus, we'll talk about in just a second. They are the Medo-Persians. They're now in charge, and they are establishing their government system in Babylon. So they were taking out large areas of, of nations, territories, different things, and as they would go along, they would kind of establish a chain of command, a government uh, system, but they would also kind of implement their cultural norms and situations, their religious idols. Uh, They would take out all of the past idols, and then they would really set up new things, and this was a common practice all throughout ancient history. And so as the Medo-Persians are establishing uh, this setup, our guy Daniel, who's now late 80s, maybe even 90 years old, a long time has passed since Daniel 1, right in our introduction to Daniel. He's now an old man, but God is still using him in amazing ways because we're going to see him elevated to a great position of prominence. In verse 1, we see it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one of, that these satraps might be accountable to the commissioners, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now, first, who is Darius? Um, If you go to the history books, it's a little bit interesting because we have talked about it. You say there's this King Cyrus of Persia that we have read about a little bit and talked about, and you'll see him in the record books. Uh, But then there is Darius. You say, well, what is going on? Are there two kings? Who who is this? There's two main thoughts on this. Uh, The first one is that Darius is actually a title. 
like you would use Pharaoh. So you'd have Pharaoh Nico, but you'd have a different Pharaoh and he would also be called Pharaoh or emperor. So whoever the king was, regardless of their name, they would be referred to as Darius. Now that is true, so this very well could be Darius and Cyrus. So Cyrus is the king, and so therefore he could be referred to as King Cyrus or Darius, and it would be the same person. The second idea, or the main thought, is that King Cyrus, being the big-time leader he is that is wiping out large areas of land as he was going through, he would set up governments, and he placed somebody, a Darius, over Babylon in that territory to lead in his stead. And that this guy's name actually wasn't Darius, still just a title. His name was Gubaru. You're like, why the weird name? Because it's different than us, okay? Gubaru, uh, if you were to go read through some ancient history records, you would see that name come up a couple of times in the Babylonian territory when Medo-Persia takes over. That's a lot of historical information that doesn't really matter too much because Darius is the king. This is who he's talking about. But the point is, uh, the biblical story, the biblical narrative as it's reporting things to us is not wrong. It's not infactual. Uh, It is just a title here. So it's not, is this Darius or Darius or Cyrus? It's the king who is in charge. Maybe it is Cyrus, maybe it's Gubaru. Uh, Regardless, they are the ones that is in charge over the territory in Babylon. And what is important is seeing that they are under new leadership and they're restructuring the chain of command. And Daniel, remember Daniel, he is uh, a holdover twice conquered, meaning the Babylonians conquered Judah of which Daniel was a member of Judah, and then he was taken captive into Babylon. So he was a captive, slave, exile that rises into prominence and leadership because of his amazing, excellent spirit, because he was faithful and God elevated him. And then it happens to Babylon, that the Persians take over Babylon, and so Daniel should be the lowest of the low on the the totem pole of importance. And yet, God uses him and elevates him to where he is a twice holdover and yet one of the most powerful people in the land. You say, how could that be? Well, it means regardless of who is in charge, literally, politically, God is still in control ultimately. And that God can move these things like he could, he could shift a stream It means nothing to him. He can pull the strings. He is in total control. He is sovereign over all of these kingdoms and these leaders. And so he elevates Daniel to positions of prominence and influence. And it says that Daniel has an excellent spirit within him, which is really referring to his attitude and his character. That Daniel has an excellent attitude and character. He carries himself well. He is gifted and wise, discerning, And as we're going to see, he's a man of integrity. He can interpret visions and dreams and all different kinds of things that it is likely Daniel's name, he had a reputation for the things of his past. He said, well, Daniel, he came in clutch many, many times to the previous leadership. You would do well to keep him around. And so he continued to distinguish himself over everyone else, which is why Darius appoints Daniel, not just as one of the three, but the one appointed over the entire kingdom. So he is over the 120, he is among the three, but he is the point person over all of it. He's the top of the pyramid in Babylon, an exile, a captive slave, twice conquered. 
God can do what he sees fit. But like all people placed into positions of authority and influence, they are put under fire and scrutiny by those below him. In verse 4, it says, Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. We see the jealousy and the hatred of these other commissioners and satraps towards Daniel. And that's always going to happen. If you're ever a manager in a position of leadership where you have people under you, or maybe you're on level terms with them and then you get promoted, no matter, no matter if you're a great leader or a lousy leader, people are going to be jealous. And people are going to try and pull you down and undermine your leadership. But in Daniel's case, this is what I love, they can't find anything against him. Look at the second half of verse 4. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these, man, these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. When they can't find anything against you, but the fact that you are absolutely sold out to your God, you're in a good place in life. <laughs> you believe that? When the only thing they have against you is a man, he really loves his God and he serves him continually for his entire life. We don't have any other problems except for that. It's that he's, he's super faithful to his God. And then I think uh, you also find yourself in the text of the New Testament when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. I think that's what it looks like right there. You're hated, you're persecuted because you're righteous. Because you love the Lord and you walk with him. And man, I just tell you, when I read this, as I was going through it and studying it for this week, I just stopped immediately and I started to pray. And I prayed that the same thing could be said of me in my life. I said, God, would I, I pray that anybody that I'm around would find me faithful in everything, that there would be no corruption, there would be no things lacking in my life, there would be no wrongdoings they would have against me. The only thing they'd have against me is my devotion to the Lord. And the same for you. The same for all of us, that in our culture today, our cancel culture, right? You've heard this many times, I'm sure, where everyone is hungry to disqualify you for whatever reason they might be able to find. May nothing but our devotion to God be found against us. May nothing but our devotion to God be found against us. Now, an interesting note here. There's another man in the scriptures who was accused of wrongdoing, but nobody could find any evidence of corruption or fault within, within him. Who is it? Jesus. So Daniel has a problem on his hands because these guys have a plot against him, verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. Is that true? Do you think they included Daniel? No, they're lying. But they consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. 
You see, the trap has been set. They know exactly what they're doing. Verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, so he knows that if he continues to live his faith out publicly in front of others, it's going to cost him. So now that he knows what it's going to cost him, here's what he does. He entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So they have these windows, which they didn't have glass. There was actually like a lattice that you could open and just let all of the, whether it was cool or warm, whatever time of the year, you could open that up and you could have a little time step on on the top of your roof chamber. And so this is what Daniel has because he's a royal official, so he has something nice. And it notices, it makes a note there that it was already open, that his window, his lattice was open. And Daniel, knowing There's a consequence if he continues to obey, continues to pray. But at the same time, if Daniel closes the lattice and he hides everything and he just prays away from everybody else, he's also kind of losing because then they've won. Because then they have shut Daniel up and closed and excluded his faith from the picture. So Daniel's in a lose-lose situation on the forefront but the, because of the trap that these people have set. And he likely knew that they were spying on him, just waiting for him to pray. But Daniel decides very deliberately to keep the window open. He decides not to hide his faith, even to the people that hate him. Daniel knew his obedience was going to cost him, but he obeys anyway. Now, if you remember in chapter 3 with the statue and the fiery furnace, there was similar pressure. There was similar pressure on Meshach and Abednego and and, I said it. Shadrach, thank you. Sorry, Shad. Uh, We saw that there was pressure on these guys. But the pressure was about not doing something. It was about not bowing down to the golden statue. For Daniel here, the obedience looks like doing something. You have a negative and say, hey, don't do this. And you have a positive where you say, doing this. In some sense, obedience to God is going to look like not doing something saying, hey, I'm going to stand. I'm not going to bow down to this. But then in other scenarios, obedience to God looks like doing something. It looks like praying, even in public, if it's going to cost you, if you're going to be ridiculed or slandered. And the point here is that obedience to God has to be public and private. It has to be full obedience, practicing our faith in Full. We can't pick and choose when we will obey and when we will not. We can't do that. We can't pick and choose. We can't be people that privately are very consistent in our walk with God, where we go to church, we pray consistently, we're kind and loving to our Christian friends, 
We don't really have anyone else in our life. We're just kind of in a little bubble amongst the people of God. But we have this people pleaser in us and we cave to societal pressures anytime there's a moment that comes on us. You're maybe in a conversation in class and they're talking about something that you disagree with and it's open forum, you could talk about it, but you stay quiet. Or maybe you're talking to a friend and they say, I believe this and I think this, and the people in people pleaser in you say, ah, that's great for you. You don't really say anything. Right? Privately, you're very consistently, but public, you're hiding your faith. You have this light, but you're hiding it. So that's not full obedience to Jesus. But then I know there are others of us in this room that don't have any problem being bold with your faith. <laughs> in fact, you are looking for it. You can't wait for someone to speak up. You can't wait for somebody to say something and you just share truth in class, standing up to it, whatever it is, you're saying, hey, I am like a pit bull, right? I will be a defender of the faith. I'm a guardian of the truth and I love that. But oftentimes... When we look privately, there is a problem, especially in Bible Belt cultural Christianity, where we love our right to worship God, but when it comes to worshiping God, we're like, uh, you know, it's not the most consistent. We're more on the outside than we are on the inside in the true worship of the Lord. As though you care more about your right to worship God than you care about actually worshiping God. We may not actually have that flourishing of a relationship with the Lord until some government tries to take away our right to worship and then we're the biggest Christian in the world. <laughs> uh, and the reality is I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not trying to provoke you. But... I am trying to call us higher to a place of full devotion to Jesus, both publicly and privately. I'm not trying to pit one against the other and say either or, you've got to choose. I'm saying both and. That we want to have a flourishing relationship with God and practice the spiritual disciplines and abide in a relationship with him no matter who is watching. But when the whole world is watching or a whole class or a friend group or whatever it may be, we also don't hide our faith to them. It's a both and. Or to put it differently, selective obedience is still disobedience. Selective faithfulness is ultimately unfaithfulness. That we can't pick and choose, we can't lean towards the public, we can't lean towards the private. It's a both and. Daniel is going to remain consistent in his devotion to God, regardless of the cost, publicly and privately, if people are watching or if they are not. And of course, these other officials are looking to complete their trap, so they go and they tattletale. They're tattletales, that's what they are. They're liars and they're rats, and they suck. <laughs> Sorry, that was too, well, they're going to get theirs. So uh, they go to tattletale on Daniel to the king. And the king is deeply disturbed because he has been fooled. And as the text says, I'm just summarizing here, he does everything in his power to release Daniel from the punishment, but he can't just crumple up the rules that he wrote. It was part of the Medo-Persian uh, culture and their political establishment. You couldn't just write something down and say, this is now law, and then five seconds later crumple it up and say, I changed my mind. So what was 
decreed has been decreed. What was done is done. He can't change it because of all of the pressure. These guys, these commissioners and satraps, they're not gonna let him go back on his word. But we see that he is deeply disturbed by this and he has a great love and affection for Daniel. Verse 14, then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute with the, which the king establishes may be changed. Notice that Daniel doesn't do anything to defend himself. He just silently endures wrongful punishment as a result of righteousness in his own life. There's going to be somebody else that does not cry out that he is being wrongly accused or anything of the sort. He quietly endures the persecution for righteousness' sake. Who is it? Jesus. And then in verse 16 through 18, then the king gave orders. And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the tomb. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. There would be no human intervention. And then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. So what they would do is they would actually lower, probably by a rope, or just chunk them in there because they didn't really care, but they would usually lower them uh, by rope through like a hatch, just an opening into this lion's den. And so they would lower them down. If you've seen like Star Wars where they have the stuff in the bottom and they have that like trap pit where they just drop them in think that okay the lions are already in there and they would just drop them into the den and then they would cover it with a stone that was too big that they couldn't just move it that Daniel in there 90 years old he couldn't just get out and escape he was stuck in there but they also didn't want anybody from the outside to get over so they would roll this thing over and then they would usually put this thin uh, clay tablet like a canvas that was kind of soft and they would take the king and his nobles and all of those that witnessed Daniel going in there and they would take their signet rings and impress it onto this clay tablet. Which means that nobody, unless the king and these nobles are there and present and affirming, nobody could just remove the stone. They're ensuring there is no human intervention at all. That's what they're doing. So yeah, you saw him go in there, king? Yep, exactly. And we're not going to remove this thing until your approval of it, which according to this law was the next day that they could remove it. Now, what's fascinating about this as they're going through it is that once Daniel is put into the lion's den, the focus is not on him at all. They put him into the lion's den and then it's radio silence. Everything of the focus moves in a different direction. It just focuses on Darius's life. Everything that he is doing, that he's, he's deeply distressed and he hopes that Daniel's God, whom he serves continually, will be able to rescue him and save him. And then he goes home and he's stressed out. He can't sleep. He's fasting. He's doing all these different things. It's not on Daniel. 
the weight and the pressure of the moment is not on Daniel. It's not like, hey, can Daniel do another Houdini act? Is that what it is? Maybe Daniel can do it again. I don't know. He's done crazier things. He ate lentil and vegetables and water, and then he was in better shape than all these other guys that were eating meat. Maybe Daniel can do it again. I don't know. They went into a fiery furnace. It didn't burn up. Maybe these guys are magicians. Maybe this is what it is. No, 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 no. There is no focus on Daniel at all because all of the weight of this moment is on Daniel's God because only something miraculous could change this scenario. Now, we have to cut here before the climax of the story to see what happens because we don't know. It's very spooky, right? This is a thriller, Halloween night. Remember, a new nation has come into power. It's the Medes and the Persians. And they are likely to believe that their gods are more powerful than the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Jews. Remember, this is very much in their ancient historical culture of how they would think. So they conquer Babylon, and Israel is there. So they say, the gods of the, of the Persians and the Medes, they are the most powerful gods. And they rule over the gods of Babylon and Israel. And they're establishing their culture. They're establishing their idols and saying, we're going to worship these gods because your gods suck, and they lost. And so these are the new sheriffs in town and they're establishing a new government and saying we're going to layer our chain of a command so that the king will suffer no loss, verse 3. We're going to put our hope in government. We're going to put our hope in all of these other gods and all of these religious practices and cultural norms. But before they can do all of that and before all of it's finished, God, the God of Daniel, the God of heaven and earth that introduced himself and reminded everyone in Babylon of who is in charge, he is going to reintroduce himself to the Persians. And say, you may not know me and you may think you're in charge and that government and your gods will solve your problems, but they will not. I alone am God. And he is going to use his faithful servant, Daniel, who was wrongfully sentenced to die by the scheming of wicked men to show himself to be sovereign over everyone else. Wicked men may have their plots. <laughs> it caught me before I could sniffle. Oh, um, God is sovereign. He's sovereign, he's in control. Um, all the weight of this story is on God. He is the hero of this story. And what I love is that the king knows it too. Did you catch what he says there? As he, I mean, he's freaking out about this whole scenario. He's thrown into the lion's den, and then the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. That, that's faith. That's faith right there. And then it's likely that Daniel in this Darius, because Dan Daniel had been distinguishing himself among these other guys, they had built a friendship. And Daniel was probably evangelizing to this guy and telling him of all these stories of what God had done in the past. And as this guy is slowly entering into a relationship with God and being introduced to him, he says, hey, your God can rescue you from this. Your God is able. Now, this may not be a saving faith at the moment, a saving faith in the promised provision of God for a, a future Messiah to save him from sin. 
But at the very least, it is a belief in the existence of Daniel's God and a belief that he was sovereign over everything, that he was in control, that he was capable of intervening, which is exactly why the king fasts and prays all night. He is surrendering his control over the situation and pleading with God to intervene. That's why we fast. That's why we pray. It's It's a display of dependence on God. It's an acknowledgement that we can't, but he can. And so we depend and we lean on him, and God is going to intervene. Verse 19, Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. When Daniel is pulled out of the lion's den unscathed, he is vindicated of any wrongdoing. He was the innocent man that he claimed to be, and he was being sentenced and punished unjustly by wicked men nobody could suggest otherwise because of the miracle that had just taken place so yeah I was wrongly accused obviously these lions would have killed me but my God intervened I'm innocent I have done you no wrong king which is exactly what Cyrus or King Darius knows because the evil are going to be cast out. They are going to be punished because they are simultaneously proved to be liars. If Daniel is innocent, then all of these other commissioners and satraps and leaders are proved to be liars. And so then the king in verse 24 gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Very intense. But the point in this is as some commentators and people have claimed to say, maybe they weren't hungry. Nah, it's not what it was. Say, ah, maybe they didn't see him. No, not what it was. It was something miraculous that God shut the lion's mouths, that God took care of his chosen vessel. That's what he does. He takes the, ve- he takes the faithful remnant and he says, I'm going to hold you fast. Now, just because we're faithful, in our lives does not mean that God is going to spare us from hurt and pain and death even in this life. See Peter who was crucified upside down. See Isaiah who was sawn in half. See every single apostle who died a martyr's death except for John who was exiled to the Patmos Island because it freaked him out because when they tried to boil him in a pot he wouldn't die. So they sent him in exile to Patmos, and then he wrote the book of Revelation because of the visions that he received. So they tried to kill him many, many times, but he, but he just couldn't be killed until God was done with him. You see, the answer to the faithful, and the faithful is not that God is going to completely preserve us for all time, and that's the promise. 
But the promise to the faithful is that God is going to save us and preserve us until he is done with us and until our mission is done on earth. You see, for Daniel, it was win-win once he got into the lion's den because he was killed in an instant and he would be lifted up into heaven to be with God or he is lifted up and miraculously saved to continue his ministry. It's win-win for the believer that is preserved by God. And that is the power of God to miraculously intervene in human history for his people. It's amazing. Isn't it nice when the story ends how it's supposed to, right? The good guy wins and the bad guys get judged. I know sometimes it's cool to have a movie where the, where the good guys don't always win. I get that. But when it really matters and it's real life, it's good. That God's people in the end, they're going to win. And the, the evil will be judged and they will be cast out. Now, what I want to do to close here, I, I want to zoom out and compare Daniel's life to that of our Savior's life, Jesus. Because even a, a couple of times in there, we said, man, doesn't that remind you of somebody? Yeah, Jesus. But it's not just in a few ways, it's in many ways that Daniel is a type of Christ or a shadow of Christ. Being type, not that he is Christ himself, but he's a foreshadowing. He's the Easter egg. He is the cookie, cu- the cookie crumb. He is something that we read and say, wow, God's got a bigger plan here. God is pointing to something else that is going to happen still yet future, that there's going to be a greater fulfillment, that Daniel is a shadow, that Christ is the substance of it. And so I just want to run through as many of them as I could pick up. I'm sure you could find more, and that's awesome. Go do it. Daniel is a son of Judah, of royal lineage, and is set apart from all his peers for godly purposes. Jesus is the son of Judah, of royal lineage from the line of Abraham and King David. He is set apart from creation for the purposes of God. Daniel is presented as the chief ruler in Babylon, which fuels the anger of his contemporary leaders. Jesus is presented as the king of the Jews, which angers the contemporary leaders, the Pharisees of his day. Daniel is conspired against by the political leaders of his day because of his holiness and constant faithfulness to God, as was Jesus. Daniel, when accused and slandered of all kinds of wrongdoings that he never even committed, silently endured the punishment. Jesus, as Isaiah 53, 7 declares, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Daniel is sentenced to death under an unjust Gentile law. Jesus is sentenced to death under an unjust Gentile law. The king, Darius, seeks to free Daniel from his sentence but is unable to because of political bureaucracy and the influence of the mob. Pilate, though desiring to free Jesus, is powerless to do so because of the political leaders and the cries of crucify from the mob. Daniel, praying in the upper room, leads to his arrest when his enemies conspire against him. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when his enemies came to arrest him. 
Daniel is thrown into the lion's den to face the inevitability of his death. The stone rolled over his grave and was sealed by the king's signet as a safeguard from human intervention. But in the earliest watch of the morning, he is risen from the lion's den, saved from the jaws of lions by the power of God, vindicated from all wrongdoing, and re-elevated to his position as ruler over the entire kingdom. His enemies are thrown into the lion's den to face the consequences of their wrongdoing, and God himself receives the glory. Jesus, upon his death on the cross, was laid into a tomb with a stone rolled over the entrance and guards on watch by Pilate's authority to safeguard against any human intervention. And on the morning of the third day, Jesus is found to be not dead, but risen from the dead by the power of God, shutting the jaws of sin and death to devour God's people no longer. Jesus, vindicated from all wrongdoing and ascended into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father, one day to come back and establish his kingdom fully and forever, pulling his people from the jaws of death forever and ever and to cast out all of his enemies to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and in the end God receives the glory Daniel as amazing and faithful as he is is not the hero of this story chapters 1 through 6 it's not about him and when the Medo-Persian press got their hands on this story and they're going to put out some amazing newspaper, yeah, they might say Daniel does it again. But that's not the story that we see. That's not the story that matters. It's not the true story. And King Darius knows it. Look at verse 25 and 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel is a shadow of the things to come of which Jesus, God in the flesh, is the substance. He is the fulfillment. And so when we read the story of Daniel, the front page of our newspaper is not Daniel does it again. The front page of our newspaper is that God is worthy. Him and him alone. We're not going to, in just a few seconds, we're not going to stand up and worship and sing to Daniel. We're going to sing and worship the God of Daniel, who shut the mouths of lions, who conquered sin and death through the sacrifice of Jesus, and the same power that shut the mouths of lions rose Jesus from the dead. And that same power, by the work of the Holy Spirit, will regenerate you to new life, conquering sin and death, so that you don't have to pay the punishment that you deserve for the sin that you've committed. And so when we tell our story, 
the front page, that newspaper, ought not to be about us as though we're the hero. But it's to God. Because he's the point. He's the subject. And the faithfulness of our lives ought to point to him so that he receives the glory forever and ever and ever. Let me pray. Father, you are worthy of all glory and honor and power and majesty forever. And God, I pray that you would take our lives, you would take um, every significant event that we have had, everything that we have gone through, and just remind us that you are in control and that you are going to redeem all that you allow for your purpose, for your glory, and for our good. And so as I think about a 15-year-old Daniel who was ripped from his home by a violent and oppressive and polytheistic, idolatrous nation in Babylon that was feared across the land, ripped from his home and his family, thrown into a culture that he knew not, that was pressuring him to, to change his identity and his lifestyle and his worship and the purpose of his life. Daniel could have said, oh, woe is me. I'm a victim. I'll just conform. I'll just bow the knee. But he didn't. He was faithful to the end. He did not bow the knee. He did not give in. But he was a light in the darkness. And as a result, not just the Jews, not just the Babylonians, not just the Medo-Persians, not just Greece, not just Rome, but all the nations of the world can see your power and your goodness on display through your faithful servant. And so God, as we, as we come to this moment, we ask that you would use us. Would you embolden us? Would you give us the courage to be faithful wherever you may plant us? knowing that you are the hero of our story. God, help us. And in those moments, Lord, we will sing of your goodness and your worthiness until Christ comes.